Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, as we continue our journey through this great and glorious book of Holy Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the word of the living Christ, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, living God, we pray that in this brief time of the preaching of the word, you would cause your people to dwell in the pleasant pastures of the food which you have ordained for us this day. May we recognize, hear clearly and savor the voice of our shepherd. Help us, we ask, for our good and your glory in Jesus name. Amen. What makes a message urgent? Why are some messages marked urgent? I think if I have my dates correct, this year is the 25th year that I will have had experience with a thing called email. It's been a while. And you know, the thing about email is that you're able to send something to someone very quickly. No longer is there a stamp putting in a box and waiting for several days. You can send a message. When email first came out, of course, it was a big deal. We were able to send emails to one another, and it became rather important. And then there was the forwarding of emails, some of which you cared not to receive. And you know how this went. But then a a new trend developed, and it, it was marking emails as urgent Starring them, highlighting them, saying that certain things were urgent, and eventually every email became urgent. In fact, marketers would say that things were urgent that, quite frankly, weren't urgent. And so what was marked as urgent, increasingly, we said, that's not really urgent. And the things that actually were urgent, they were crucial, they were of a time-centered basis, we sometimes... Disregarded. What makes a message urgent? Well, of course, we would say it's content. The time in which we are to consider its content. Something is urgent if it needs to be attended to immediately. Peter has something marked urgent in this letter. All of it, of course, is of great importance. But notice what he says. Beloved, I beg you. I beg you, this is urgent. There is an urgent appeal in this passage. Now, if we were to consider, as we are the entire book of First Peter, commentators have made note of the fact that our text today shifts us in the letter because the previous few sections have dealt upon the issue of how we are to live together how we're to treat one another, the love that we're to have within the body. And now 
Peter shifts to how to live in the outside world and the institutions of the world. Notice what will come next. How are we to live in the world under government, the civil magistrate? How are we to consider submission to our earthly masters and employers? What are our homes to look like? Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on this book, makes note of the fact that our section begins in verse 12, speaking of God's glory. And the section goes all the way to chapter 4, verse 11, and ends with a discussion of God's glory. God's glory being central now as we consider what it's like for us to live in the world, a world which is hostile to the gospel. And Peter marks this message urgent, urgent. So let's look at this urgent message. Verse 11, beloved, I beg you. Now, there's going to be a command in this passage. It is to abstain from fleshly lusts. That's the urgent appeal. But before we get to that urgent appeal, notice that word beloved. This is not just Peter's way of saying that he loves them, although that is the case. But flowing out of the previous texts, he's calling them not only his beloved, but the beloved of God. God has loved them and has made them his own. This would be a theme that the writers of the New Testament would often use. Paul would use it in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And he would literally say to those recipients, you are beloved by the Lord. That's who you are. If you're in Christ, you are loved by God. So loved ones of God and loved ones of me, Peter would say, I beg you. I beg you. Okay. So what is the urgent message? Notice what he says. I beg you, abstain from fleshly lusts. Abstain from fleshly lusts. The Greek word underlying that phrase, lust, is everywhere in the New Testament. It was also used quite commonly in the Greco-Roman world of the day. The word could be translated lusts, desires, longings, passions, So what are these fleshly lusts? Well, he qualifies it, doesn't he? Because earlier in this book, he said that there are certain good desires. Just a few passages before, what did he say? Desire the pure milk of the word. So desire in and of itself is not sinful. It's right to long for certain things, to have desires for certain things. But he qualifies it in our text. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Fleshly desires, fleshly longings. These are the natural desires that sinful human beings have. They've been tainted by sin. Our desires, our longings have been tainted by sin. And that taint of sin doesn't leave just because the Holy Spirit of God regenerates us. Fleshly enticements for sin. One trusted Lexicon of Greek words defines it this way, quote, strong desire for what belongs to others or for that which is morally wrong. And hasn't this been our problem since the garden? Do you remember the discussion of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin in Genesis chapter three, verse six? Turn there with me for just a moment. Genesis chapter three. 
Maybe you haven't noticed it before. But as is often the case, sin takes hold of us in our hearts and minds before we see the outward action of it. Genesis 3, 6, the serpent has whispered into the ears of Eve, causing her to doubt, tempting her to doubt the word of God. Notice verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. There was a desire there for something which God had said, don't have. Of course, if you're a parent, you know that sin follows the very next generation. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. Now the world has been plunged into sin. Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden. Their first two children, Cain and Abel, are offering sacrifice to the Lord. And God actually speaks to Cain. Cain is jealous of his brother. He says, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. We won't linger there. But the very next action that Cain takes is to desire the very life of his brother. These are unhealthy desires. They are natural to us, but they are fleshly enticements for sin. In the book of 1 Peter, the word flesh is often used with a view towards weakness. 1 Peter 1, 24, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. In fact, look at chapter 4, just a chapter or two away. Peter will pick up this theme again. 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Sinful enticements, longings, desires within us that want things that God has said we should not have. Or we want things that God has given to someone else. And aren't these fleshly desires so very strong so often? One word of comfort that others have noted, the very fact that Peter mentions that believers should not give in to fleshly lusts provides us with the implication that true Christians will wrestle with this until Christ returns. It was urgent because it's important. But this is a reality for us until Christ returns. If you thought about the glorious reality that the moment a believer dies and goes with Christ It's not just that that person is not in physical pain anymore. 
It's not just that that person is seeing the living Christ. But there's also the reality that that person is free from the lusts of the flesh. Heaven becomes increasingly precious to us the longer that we walk with Christ for many reasons, one of which is we cannot wait until the day that we no longer stray from him. Peter is right to say this message is marked urgent. You need to abstain from the fleshly lusts. Yes, the sins that are tempting you from outside, but also the the lusts that boil up within you. The desires and longings that you still have in the remaining sin in your life. Peter says, I beg you. Those are strong words. Your translation may render it somewhat differently. I like this version. I beg you. (laughs) I'm pleading with you. I make an earnest appeal. But Peter gives three, at least, supporting reasons why we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. Let's lay these out together. Firstly, we're to abstain from fleshly lusts because Christians are pilgrims. We don't belong here. The things that we used to lust after and desire and long after in this world when we were not Christians, when we were not saved, when we didn't have the Holy Spirit residing in us, those things are Not for us now. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. Notice what he says. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. The first reason is, you don't belong here. So don't dance with the desires that belong here. I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims. And these two words used together often are used together in the pages of Holy Scripture. And for instance, in Genesis 23, verse 4, they're used of Abraham. Abraham is described as a sojourner and a pilgrim. This is how the New Testament described the Old Testament saints. Turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The saints before Christ even came. Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What made them strangers and pilgrims? That they were looking, as chapter 11 says, to a city whose maker and builder is God. You see, our minds are set elsewhere. Our souls are longing for elsewhere. And so because this is not our home, Peter says, I beg you, abstain from the fleshly lusts that you used to walk in. Because believers are pilgrims, and because their home is not here, the old lusts are no longer right for them. Peter will pick up on this theme in his next letter can turn there or I'll just read it. But 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our gaze is fixed elsewhere. 
but we wrestle with remaining sin. Our desires are still tainted with sin. Our longings are still tainted with sin. In his commentary on this passage, Michaels writes this, quote, Because they are aliens and strangers in Roman society by virtue of their election, Peter urges on his readers a clean moral break with the natural impulses of their past, impulses belonging to the darkness out of which they have been called. What does it mean, though, to be one who is overtaken with fleshly lusts? Paul picks up this theme in his letter to Titus, and it serves us well. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, there Paul says this, speaking of what their lives were like as unbelievers. For we ourselves were once also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. We served the lust that is involved in sinful anger. We served the lust that was involved in sexual sin. We served the lust that was involved in envy. We served the lust that is involved in the desire for recognition, in the desire for wealth. There is a longing for something, sometimes bad things, sometimes good things, but in a way that is improper. And those longings, those natural impulses, those desires have become twisted because of the fall. And so we cannot look on hardly anything in this life without sinful desire for it. Until the Holy Spirit of Christ regenerates us and gives us spiritual life and changes our desires and our affections. Because Christians are pilgrims, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. But there's a second reason in this text, isn't there? Peter says we also should abstain from fleshly lusts because fleshly lusts wage war on the soul. Fleshly lusts wage war on the soul. He says as much, doesn't he? Verse 11, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. I think here Peter doesn't just mean that immaterial part of us. You know, as, as, as human beings, we're made in the image of God as body and soul. I think this is an instance where Peter is using the word soul to stand for all of who we are, not just our souls proper. Sin, and specifically in this context, the sinful desires and longings wage war against our souls. They wage war against our souls. James picks up on this theme in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't we regularly want to know the answer to that question? Why is there war in the world? The scriptures tell us. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, 
yet you do not have because you do not ask. And then he moves into a separate theme. But James, Paul, Peter, they all speak to these fleshly desires, these sinful lusts. Note some words of believers down through the ages on Second Peter 2.11. John Owen, the Puritan of the 1600s, says this, quote, It takes the part of an assailant as well as of a resister. It makes attempts for rule and sovereignty as well as opposeth the rule of grace, end quote. Or... The writers of that Bible, the Geneva Bible that came out in the 1500s, they said this as they commented on Second, First Peter 2.11, quote, For although those lusts flatter us, yet they cease not to fight against our salvation. End quote. Martin Luther, in similar fashion, As soon as the spirit and faith enter our hearts, we become so weak that we think we cannot beat down the least imaginations and sparks of temptation. And we see nothing but sin in ourselves from the crown of the head even to the foot. For before we believed, we walked according to our own lusts. But now the spirit is calm and would purify us. And a conflict or war arises when the devil, the flesh, and the world oppose faith. If thou then hast wicked thoughts... If thou then hast wicked thoughts, are you not on the edge of your seats? At least those of you who are spiritually aware enough of yourself to know that you do have them. What are you going to say, Luther? If thou then hast wicked thoughts, on this account, despair. Only be on thy guard that thou be not taken prisoner by them. Luther writing in the 1500s on this theme, says, essentially, don't be surprised when there's a war. For the flesh wages a fight even in the life of a believer. We could personify, boys and girls, if we could make our desires, that part of us that wants certain things, if we could make that have a mouth, For just a moment. It might say something like this. You may be a Christian and you may have a new master, but I still want my say. The world around you. Well, you can have your Jesus, but we still want to have our say. Of course, the enemy. Did God really say you should have seen What Luther is saying is we shouldn't be surprised when there is a war for our desires and our affections. There is a holy battle raging in the heart of each believer. Now you may think, I thought thought it was finished. I thought the battle was finished. The war is over. Yes, it is over. But not every battlefield has received word of victory yet. Your desires flare up in you. My desires will often flare up in me. And we still wrestle. Oh, I, I want that. It's not mine, but I want it. They have that. I want it. 
That doesn't belong to me. But it should. And there is a holy battle raging. Peter says these fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. This is why Peter marks this message urgent. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. He says that differently, doesn't he? But very similarly in Romans chapter seven, in the life of the believer, Maybe you've walked with Christ long enough to say, like Paul in Romans 7 or Galatians 5, the things that I actually want to do to glorify God, I don't always do. And the things that I don't want to do, sometimes I find myself still doing them. And it's like this battle within me. It's like this war within me. Of course, Paul breaks out and The end of Romans 7, the beginning of Romans 8. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? Praise be who? Christ. Peter says, "This this is an urgent message for you. He's already comforted them. He's already said, this is who you are in Christ. This is your home. I'm not telling you to abstain from lust because maybe one day you will be a Christian. I'm not telling you to abstain from lust because maybe one day God will love you. No, those things are already said before he gets to this urgent message. Because you have a home, because you are God's people, because you don't belong here. Abstain from fleshly lusts. When you feel those desires within you, don't accept those words for their mere flattery. When you sense within you a desire, a longing for something that is against the law of God, don't for one moment think that that desire is for your good. But you know, in addition to abstaining from fleshly lusts because we don't belong here, and because these lusts actually war against the soul, and most, it seems, of humanity will be overtaken and destroyed by that war on the last day. Peter gives one other reason, and that is we are to abstain from fleshly lusts because we are witnesses in the world. Look what he says in verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know one of the precious things about Christian good works, aside from God getting glory, aside from others getting benefit, one of the blessed realities of Christian good works is that oftentimes the things that you do for the glory of God were things that you used to hate. And God has changed that within you. Sometimes the things that you no longer give into, you used to love giving into. 
So the glorious reality of kingdom people, people who are in Christ, is not just that they do good works, but that it shows off to the world God has worked miraculously in their hearts. We're to abstain from fleshly lust because we are witnesses in the world. Now, Peter uses that word, if you've been with us throughout this sermon series, the word conduct shows up a lot of times. In first Peter he uses it here, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Here he's using that more Old Testament usage of the word Gentile for unbelievers. You could literally say it that way. Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among unbelievers. Has there ever been another who would say. Do certain things. Because the world will notice. Yes. Remember the voice of our shepherd. Our blessed savior in Matthew 5 verse 16. Let your light so shine before men. What? That they may see your good works. And glorify your father in heaven. Peter is just echoing what Christ has already said. But here he's. He's giving it as one of the reasons that we're to abstain from fleshly lusts, giving in to these lusts and living in these lusts, allowing these lusts to remain in our minds. Notice he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter almost has in mind the idea that you're going to abstain from giving in to fleshly lusts. The world is going to notice it, and they're going to call you evildoers. They did that in the first and second century during Peter's day. You know what they called Christians? Haters of mankind. You Christians hate human beings. Does that sound familiar? In that day, it was... You hate us because you won't sacrifice to our gods. It's just a pinch of incense. But every tragedy that happened, every hurricane, storm, whatever it may be, shipwreck, it's got to be the people who are not sacrificing to our gods. And the gods are angry with us. So they've sent this hurricane, this storm, this calamity upon us. And it's you Christians. You won't give in. You're haters. 2,000 years of God's people being told by the world, you are the haters. When the Bible all along calls the haters those who don't trust Christ, for they hate God. In our day, the theme may be slightly different, but the truth is still there. When they see what you're doing and what you won't do, and they call you evildoers for it, They may, perhaps, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter picks up on this theme in the next few chapters. For instance, 1 Peter 4, verse 4, listen to this. In regard to these, and he's just made a list of sins, lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Speaking evil of you. 
Why don't you come to our parties? Why don't you do what we do? What's wrong with you? Why don't you parent your child normally? You're evil. Suddenly all the atheists in the world have an evil. It's us. Because we don't run with them. But Peter is saying one of the reasons to abstain from fleshly lusts, in addition to you not belonging here because you're a pilgrim, in addition to the fact that these lusts wage war against the soul, is thirdly that you're a witness. Listen, when you don't give in to these things, the living God may indeed use it to be, humanly speaking, an outward means of some glorifying God in the day of visitation. I can't transport you there now, for the word of Christ is sufficient. But think on this theme. The return of Christ... And people giving glory to God and part of them giving the glory to God is that they say in their souls, for years I was enslaved to this, that, or the other sin. And one of Christ's people didn't give in to those sins and they did certain good works. And the Holy Spirit of God began to work in my heart in such a way that as I saw that, I wanted to know, what is this hope that you have? How is it that you're not enslaved to this desire? Which seemed harmless to me. And I asked those questions. And I heard the gospel of Christ. The Spirit awakened me. And God is to be praised because Jesus saved me. Because that's what Peter says. Now we have an interpretation issue we need to deal with. He says that they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Sometimes in scripture, the day of visitation is a symbol for when God offers, he visits and brings salvation. Sometimes, though, the day of visitation may very well be a reference to when judgment comes. So what is Peter saying here? Is he saying that our conduct should be pure and honorable so that when judgment comes, they may glorify God? Or is he saying when the day comes where salvation is offered, God gets glory? I tend to think that it's the second. Here's why. The phrase day of visitation, yes, it it could could refer to judgment or to the appearance of salvation, but it is often used literally day of visitation as a reference to salvation. For instance, Luke chapter one, verse 68, Luke chapter one, verse 68. Let me just read this one to you for there. The scripture speaking of the promised coming of Christ says this. You remember Zacharias, father of John the Baptist. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Similarly, this theme is seen in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. But in addition to this visitation language, it seems more regularly speaking of God offering salvation. 
visiting humanity and saying, here is salvation. It would seem strange to speak of people who make fun of Christians and call them evildoers, seeing good works and then turning around and glorifying God. It seems more likely that what Peter has in view here is that some unbelievers will see you abstaining from fleshly lusts and his spirit will awaken them as the word is proclaimed. And they too with you will glorify God on the day that Christ returns. When all the world sees the blinding light of the pristine glory and grace of Christ. This is the day of visitation. But you know, there's one other reason why I think we're talking about unbelievers seeing good works and trusting Christ. And that is something that Peter says in the next chapter. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Ladies, this is to you. Wives, likewise. Be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, meaning they don't receive the gospel, they, without a word, may be won by the what? There it is, conduct of their wives. So there's a regular theme of living a specific way in, in the face and view of the world that God gets glory. And that some actually come to Christ because, humanly speaking, the outward means is that they've noticed the weirdness of Christians. These people don't belong here. They're not like us. Why are they not like us? Why do they not do what we do? Why do they not want what we want? Or why does it bother them when they want something that we want? We're to abstain from fleshly lusts because we are witnesses in the world. There is a day of visitation coming, friend. It is a day when Christ will return. And it's one day, it's not two, it's one day. But on that day, there are two realities that will occur. There's not a single human being that exists or ever has existed that won't see this day. For Christ will come as he has promised... His holy angels, ten thousands upon ten thousands, will gather his sheep, those for whom he poured out his blood from every nation and tribe and tongue. And there they will, with eyes full of humble vindication, experience the glorious reality that everything that they held tightly to by God-given faith has now become sight. They will be enraptured in the love of a Savior who died for them. But there will be others who heard the gospel promise that Christ will save. They heard the news, hey, you're a sinner. Your desires, your actions, your soul, your life, your very identity is bent against God. And they cast off this gospel, this good news. They said, I don't want anything to do with your Christ. I don't need a Savior. I don't need a sacrifice. I'll have it my own way. I'll do it myself. 
And there will be no atonement for their sins. They will be standing before the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their only record will be their own. Covered in sins. A record of constantly giving in to sinful desires, lusts, hatred of fellow man and fellow woman. Spitting on the glory of God. Thinking thoughts that were wicked. But there will be no covering for sin. And God who is just will simply move against injustice. Now what's interesting is that that crowd of people gathered up by the angels of Christ will also have had records of giving in to sin, hating human beings, doing despicable things, spitting on the glory of God. But the difference is on that day, they will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His record will be their record. They will be standing in front of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with a record that is not their own. You see, their record has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And now they're clothed in the righteous record of Christ, who never once gave in to sin. Christ didn't have sinful desires. But he had a perfect record of never outwardly moving towards sin in a way that dishonored God. And these saints will be clothed in his righteousness. And this will be their covering throughout all the ages. So the question is, when God comes on that day and his salvation is seen by all, are you under the blood of the Lamb? Have you received Christ? His offer to you is sincere. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will clothe you. I will put my spirit within you that you may walk in my ways. My record of perfect righteousness will be yours all by faith. Are you ready, friend, to stand before God? A final few questions. This message has been marked urgent. If you're here and you're relatively uninterested in this message, maybe like I do with many emails that come from marketers, it's marked urgent, but you kind of just ignore it. You're ignoring this message. Will you stand by, professor of Christ, and be overrun by fleshly desires? Christian, living a faithful life, will you continue? This is marked urgent. Press on, for this is a glorious fruit of grace. Every single moment that you do not give in to sinful lusts. Dads, will your sons see you fight in this war? They often see us fighting on the battlefields of sports, gyms, football and baseball and soccer games. Will they see us fight this war? Moms, our children will benefit each time 
that they see you not give in to fleshly lusts. To the backslider in this room, the person who is in Christ but who has been living according to fleshly lusts for weeks, months, are you content to call yourself a Christian but not hear this urgent call from your Savior? To the lost one. Your soul is currently defeated by lusts. You're overrun by sinful desires. And this will lead to death. Will you? Will you hear the precious words of Christ by His Spirit in this word? Come to me and I will clean you. You will walk in my ways. The message is marked urgent. I fear too many of us may do what we do with our emails and say, I'll get to it later. But perhaps this urgent message is one that we will hear and say, it's marked urgent. Let's take up and read and act accordingly. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. Help us as we take up this urgent message which is for believers, that we ought to abstain from fleshly lusts. Help your people, we pray, to have a longing. Change our desires, our affections. We pray that you would awaken any who are lost in darkness here today. In Jesus' name.